Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50. While you turn there, I'll give you a little heads up that this morning we're going to be discussing, covering, preaching from Jeremiah chapter 46 through 51. So we are covering our largest section in the book today. And I just want to read to you a, a short selection out of Jeremiah chapter 50. So if you find it on your Bible or on your iPhone or your pad or however you're using the Bible these days, Jeremiah chapter 50, starting with verse 1. The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim. Set up a banner and proclaim. Conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Turn to chapter 51, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of Leb Kamai. I will send to Babylon winnowers, and they shall winnow her, and they shall empty her land when they come against her from every side on the day of trouble. Let not the archer bend his bow, and let him not stand up in his armor. Spare not her young men, devote to destruction all her army. They shall fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans and wounded in her streets. For Israel and Judah had not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts, but the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. Skip forward in the same chapter to verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with, his del with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. The violence done to me and to my kinsmen be upon Babylon. Let the inhabitant of Zion say, My blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea. Let Jerusalem say, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will please plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry. And, become, and Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a harrow, a hissing without, ha inhabit without inhabitant. I want to speak to you this morning on this theme, salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgments. Let's pray and let's ask God for his help this morning. Father, we Thank you, Lord, for this time that we can be together. We ask, God, that as we come into this word, that you will speak to us in ways that only you can speak to us. Father, these are some difficult chapters to read, much less to preach. God, I pray that you would help us to understand that our salvation comes through judgment. It is Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1945, liberation came to Jews all across Germany, trapped in prison camps. Liberation came as judgment came down upon the Nazis. As Nazi leadership was arrested, tried, executed. Liberation came to the oppressed. Salvation through judgment. 
Uh, imagine that you're, you've got a child. Montrose, let's say your baby's born, your baby's kidnapped, all right? Yeah. I mean, just to kind of like start off with like a nice thought here. And, uh, and you see the kidnapper. And um, I don't know, you've got a metal bar in your hand. Just so happens to be in your hand. This is what we call salvation through judgment. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the oppressed is saved, is freed, as the oppressor is judged. Salvation through judgment. Or maybe you're being bit by a lion. Just another example off the top of my head. And the lion's got your arm in his jaws, and I'm standing there with a gun. And you look at me, and you're like, shoot this thing. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm kind of an animal activist. <laughs> you're like, I don't care about your animal convictions right now. You want salvation through judgment on the lion. Are you tracking with me? Salvation always comes through judgment. That is the message of the Old Testament, and it's the message of the whole Bible. I wonder if you feel oppressed this morning. I wonder if you feel like this crazy world that we live in sometimes has oppressed you. Maybe through actual people, flesh and blood, individuals oppressing you, enemies around you. Maybe through the brokenness of our bodies as we experience the curse of the fall. Maybe through the ongoing temptation that Satan brings into your life. I wonder if you feel oppressed this morning. Listen, on one hand, we are victims. On the other hand, we're contributors. On one hand, we are victims of oppression. On one hand, we are victims of violence and pride and human foolishness. On the other hand, we are contributors to pride, violence, and human foolishness. What we need is complete freedom. First, we need freedom from our own guilt. And second, we need freedom from the evil world in which we live. Salvation through judgment is the theme of the Old Testament. As you think of the Old Testament, it starts with what story? Come on. Creation and the Garden of Eden. Correct. What happens in the Garden of Eden? Well, they fall, and then there is this, in chapter 3, judgment that is prophesied coming upon the serpent, in which there's a baby going to be born through the seed of a woman, and that baby is going to crush the head of the serpent, thus freeing the people of the curse. Salvation through judgment. Or we could fast forward to the days of Egypt. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. They're in bondage. What does God do? God judges Egypt through ten plagues. And as a result of the judgment that comes upon Egypt, the people are saved. Salvation through judgment. Or I think of the people of Israel going into the Canaan land. God is bringing judgment on the Canaanites for their sin and thus, in that way, delivering the land to His people. Freedom of the land. Salvation through judgment. It's not just the theme of the Old Testament. Salvation through judgment is the theme of the whole Bible. Let's fast forward to Calvary. What do we see on the cross? We see the greatest judgment of all placed on the Jesus Christ by whom, through whom we are saved. Salvation through judgment. 
It is the theme of the second coming. When Jesus comes back again one day, there is going to be the greatest judgment of all on all of the world and thus deliverance, salvation for His people. Salvation through judgment. Now here in the book of Jeremiah, we have been walking through this thing. We are getting near the end. We have two sermons left today and next week. And we're done with Jeremiah. The longest book in the Bible outside of the Psalms. <laughs> Praise God, it's the longest book. Praise God, we're wrapping it up. I mean, it's the Word of God. So go ahead and give me your answer. So we've seen a little bit of judgment in Jeremiah. The book is about judgment. We've seen judgment on Israel because they're rebels, because they're sinners. But check this out. The book is not just a book about judgment. And actually, I'll say this. I've actually enjoyed preaching through Jeremiah because what I've seen, and I think you'll agree with me as much as we joke about it, what we've seen is so much salvation in the book of Jeremiah. It's a book about salvation, where we see the judgment of God on the other hand, on the other side of that coin, is salvation. Now, uh, it's been largely about Israel. The last six chapters here, prior to the final chapter, 52, turn to the nations. If you remember all the way back to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10, God said this to Jeremiah. He said, see, I have set you this day over nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Jeremiah is not a world traveler. He's, he's a homebody. He's, he, he hangs out in Judah. His first travel was as an exile to uh, uh, Egypt. But God set Jeremiah over the nations. What does that mean? It means that God is giving Jeremiah a word for the nations. And so we turn now, as the book comes to a close, and we see God's rage against the nations. These nations that are mentioned here in chapters 46 through 51, there's nine of them total, and they're the nations surrounding the borders of Israel, as well as a couple other. Nine nations total here that are receiving judgment of God. We'll look at the first eight briefly. Then we're going to focus on the last one, which is Babylon. If you want to flip back to 46, in chapter 46 we see God's judgment on the nation of Egypt. Egypt is a symbol of historic oppression against Israel. Egypt had slaughtered Josiah the good king in Israel. And God's judgment is coming upon Egypt. Scholars say this is some of the best poetry in the whole Old Testament. Look at verse 3. He says, Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness and horses, mount, O horsemen. Take your stations with your helmets, polish your spears, put on your armor. These are just pictures of modern day uh, tools that would be used in warfare. And God is challenging the Egyptians to put it on, get ready for war. And then in the next verses, God basically says, I will make you stumble. I will knock you down. You will stagger. Verse 10, that, the, that day is the day of the Lord, of God, of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord, of, uh, the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. In verses 27 and 28, we see words of salvation. So we see judgment on Egypt. And in verses 27 and 28, I won't read them to you right now, but... We see salvation for Israel. I'll read you verse 28. Fear not, he says, O Jacob, my servant, for I am with you. I will make you a full end of nations to which I have driven you. But of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. In chapter 47, we see judgment on the Philistines. In chapter 48, we see judgment on Moab. 
This is the second longest passage of judgment outside of Babylon. In verse 7 of chapter 48, we see that Moab was was a people who had pride. I don't know if you know anything about that. Look at verse 7. He says, I'm judging you for because you trusted in your works and in your treasures. Pride. Trusting in what you do. Trusting in what you have. Verse 16, the calamity of Moab is near at hand, and his affliction hastens swiftly. Now here in verse 17, we see what I think is the proper response to judgment. Look at it. Grieve for him. All you who are around and all who know his name. Grieve for him. We see God's grief, and we see the grief of Israel all through these chapters as God brings judgment on the nations. This is interesting. What is our response as we think of God's judgment on sin? Well, it's grief. God doesn't take sick pleasure in judging the wicked. It grieves Him. And it grieves us. Oh, grief doesn't mean it's wrong. But we grieve the fact that images of God have rejected their Creator. And as a result, God's judgment has come upon them. In chapter 49, we see judgment on a nation called Ammon in verse 1 through 6. In verses 7 through 22, we see judgment on Edom. In verses 23 through 27, we see judgment on Damascus. In verses 28 through 33, we see judgment on Kedar and Hazar. For example, in verse 33, Hazar shall become a haunt of jackals, an everlasting waste. In verses 34 through 39, we see judgment on Elam. And finally, we get into judgment on Babylon. Before we move to Babylon, let me just say, let me ask a question. What's going on here? Why, why five chapters, six chapters, of judgment on all of these different nations? Well, I think there's two or three reasons. I'm going to determine how many as I talk to you right now, but there's at least two. (laughs) Number one, there is a practical reason, and that is this. Babylon has taken over the known world. All of these nations are in the path of Babylon, and Babylon is destroying nations. Now, spiritually speaking, the second reason is that God is using Babylon as a tool for judgment which shows us that God is in control over everything. And God is using Babylon as a tool for judgment against all of these nations. But why is God judging these nations? I thought God was going to judge Israel. Well, here's the point. God judges all nations equally. Israel is not receiving some sort of unfair punishment. God is not just the God of Israel. God is very concerned about the way of life of everybody, of all of the nations. And God's judgment is coming on all nations equally. Listen, God is concerned about the actions, the injustices, and the pride of nations. Governments discriminatory laws, greed at the top, the exploitation of people. This has caused so much pain and suffering in the world. And not just caused past tense, but this causes present tense. So much pain and suffering in the world. When you look around our own city and ask ourselves, why is there so much pain and suffering in the city. At one level, we can look at the individual and see mistakes that individuals have made. True, correct. But we can also broaden it and see grievous mistakes that our nation has made, that our city has made and is currently making, which is promoting the exploitation of the poor, greed at the top, 
the dehumanization of entire people groups. Listen, don't think that God doesn't care about these things. When a nation takes their army and their power and uses violence to take another nation and to, to, to take resources from, don't think that God is just turning away from that. Oh, that's just politics. That's just government stuff. God cares about injustice. He sees it. He sees the oppressor at the national level, and friends, at our personal level, he sees the oppressor. What we see here is this, humanity is guilty before God. Humans are guilty before God as we organize ourselves together. And humans are guilty before God individually as we are personal rebels against him. Well, we turn into chapters 15 and 51, and now we see Babylon, which this is interesting. If this is your first Sunday here, first of all, thanks for being here, and second of all, I'm sorry we're covering six chapters and, of judgment. Um, come back next week, and it'll just be one more chapter of judgment, and then we'll be done. Um, uh, but Babylon in Jeremiah has been the oppressor. Babylon has come in and taken a good chunk of Israel. Now, they are the only chunk left. They're called the remnant in Babylon. What we see here in the end of the book is that Babylon is under God's judgment. Oh, this is interesting. This, this conversation is for, for the future, all right? Interesting conversation on the sovereignty of God. God has used, clearly, Babylon as his tool. He has said, Babylon is my servant. Does that mean Babylon is not responsible for the decisions that Babylon has made? They are. And God now holds Babylon accountable for the decisions of injustice and oppression, greed, violence, for the decisions that they themselves have made. Now, before I get into this, let me just ask this question. How should we understand these passages? Uh, what does this mean for us? Or how do I preach this passage? Well, I think there's, there, there are three different levels of fulfillment as we understand passages like this. I'll actually give you a visual explanation. So, level one, ground level. All right, when we were in Killington, Vermont this last summer, a couple months ago, what month are we in? October? Uh, we, we went to Killington, Vermont, which is north of here, about six hours or so in the mountains. There's three different, I saw Killington at three different levels. The ground level, it's beautiful. You're looking around, there's mountains, it's a nice sight. But then there's another level, and I'm going to explain it this way, it's going up into the trails, right? This would be what we'll call level two. This is experiencing the mountain, if you would. Level three, all right, level three in Killington, Vermont, was this rock. That, that my daughter and I climbed up to. So we, we, we went on this hike, and Jaden and I went the whole way up to the top of this mountain, and there's this rock up there called Deer Loop Rock. And it's this big rock right on the edge of a cliff, and we were able to climb to the top of this rock, and from that vantage point, we could see the whole thing. We could see all of Killington. From that, it was, it was breath. Have you ever had like a sight that's literally breathtaking? We always use that word breathtaking. But have you ever ha seen a sight that's literally breathtaking, like it's hard to breathe? Wind slapping you in the face. And it's absolutely beautiful, but you feel like you're going to die. It's that haunting kind of beauty. That would be level three. That's how I want us to see this text. I want to kind of travel up the mountain a little bit and view these six chapters from these three 
levels. So level one would be at the ground level, it would be the original recipients of this text. Understand it from their perspective. Level two is going to take us up the road to Calvary to see it from the perspective of the cross. And level three is going to take us all the way to the book of Revelation and to see it from the perspective of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let's travel a little bit together. Level one, we see salvation through judgment on literally Babylon herself. I'll use another kidnapping analogy this morning. So I've already used, I'm not going to pick on your daughter anymore. Um, imagine you are kidnapped, all right? And you're there sitting in the middle of this camp. These people are walking around with swords. And you're tied to some post. You think you're going to die. It's about 7 p.m. You're hungry as well. They're eating, all right? And on the hillside, you see your hero, your friend. He's there. You know that he's about to make an ambush. You make eye contact. You look at each other. He nods at you. You nod back. Nobody else knows this. You've seen movies like this, right? I don't know what movie I'm talking about, but I'm talking about a movie. I'm going somewhere. You're still a captive, but you know that your freedom is soon to come as the hero judges the captor. That's the way that the initial recipient would have read this. Are you tracking with me? Who were the initial recipients? A little pop quiz. Somebody? Israel, it's which ones though? Where were they? Yeah, probably the ones in Babylon. So we don't know exactly how this happened. Jeremiah ended up in Egypt when they were forced down there, when he was forced down there. Some scholars think Jeremiah probably died in Egypt. His right-hand man, though, the scribe, made it back to Babylon, was able to travel through the wilderness somehow and was able to get to the exiles in Babylon. And was able to receive, uh, they were able to receive this word. Most likely the original recipients of this letter, or of this book, were the exiles in Babylon. Remember the letter to the exiles in chapter 29? He said, build houses. You're going to be there for a while. Like, don't get too comfortable, but get comfortable. And seek the welfare of the city. Be salt and light in the empire in which you find yourselves. They are reading this, and for them, what they're reading is that judgment is coming upon Babylon. In verse 4 of chapter 50, we see this prophecy that pretty soon this remnant is going to come weeping. They're going to come with tears, with repentance back to Israel. In verse 7, we see that the Babylonians are saying, we don't have any guilt. They do. The Babylonians are mocking the Israelites because, oh, their God must have abandoned them. We don't have any guilt. And God directly confronts that in verse 7 and says, oh, yes, you do. And in verse 8, he looks at his remnant and he says, get ready to flee from their midst. Verse 23, God is making them a hammer of the earth and they are cut down. In verse 24, or the end of verse 23, they are going to be a horror to the nations. In verse 24, we see that Babylon opposed the Lord. In verse 29, they proudly defied the Lord. As strong as Babylon seems in this day, in this moment, verse 44, God says, I will appoint over her whoever I choose, for who is like me? Babylon is not more powerful than the God of the remnants. In chapter 51, we see the reason for this judgment. In verse 5, he says, For Israel has not been forsaken. 
The reason Babylon is going to be judged is because God is about to save his people. In verse 34 through 36 of chapter 51, Babylon, we see, has crushed Israel, swallowed her up like a beast. Think of uh, Jonah and the great fish swallowing up Jonah. But in verse 35, we read, the, 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 the violence done to me and my kinsmen, may that be upon Babylon. Now the great climax comes in verse 57. God is going to judge Babylon, and he says of her, he says, they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake. But who is it that's saying these words? He goes on and he says, declares the king. The king. Whose name is the Lord of hosts. Now pause for a second. There is no king in Israel right now. They don't have a king. Again, we're at at level one right now. We're hearing this as if we are the remnant in Babylon. And what Jeremiah is declaring is that there's a king talking. And this king is the king who he calls the Lord of hosts. Who throughout the scriptures would be a reference for God himself. What Jeremiah is saying is that there is a king that is going to come, and this king is the one who right now is about to bring judgment on your oppressor. Well, we have to quickly go on to level two. Because as soon as we read this, we have to recognize, fast-forwarding to our day, that we are a people who are guilty. I don't know about you, but I know that I'm not the remnant of Israel in Babylon. I am Babylon. You see what I'm saying? Like, I know myself. I know the pride that I have dealt with. I know violence. I know what it means uh, uh, to, to, to oppress, to use words to hurt, and to not build up. As soon as we read this, and this is what, by the way, this is why it's difficult to read this, is because it does draw out the guilt in our own soul. We read this and we realize, like, no, I am the one that is going to be judged. Like, all of us, we want justice for others, but do we really want justice to come? We're afraid of justice. Because of what that might mean for us. So we have to move to level two. We have to move to Calvary. We have to move to the cross. Without the cross, we read this. Without the cross, we are left with one of two extremes. We're left either believing that we are the innocent ones and that everybody else deserves judgment. I, I, I've been teaching uh, apologetics at a school, and we're working through the concept of God's justice. And one thing I've been telling my class is everybody always wants justice for somebody else, but not for me. Actually, Carday yesterday when we were driving back uh, from D.C., Carday we were talking about uh, Murder, Inc., the, the, the blog. And uh, Carday said it's interesting to read the comments on Murder, Inc., Because everybody always wants justice for the person who killed their homeboy. At the same time, they say, but free my homeboy. Free free my man. Let him go. Meaning, yeah, I I I want justice for everybody else. But for me and for my people, I want to be on top. I want to be able to get away with what I can get away with. You see what I'm saying? This would be reading Jeremiah with one extreme, ignoring the cross. Assuming that we are on top. Assuming that our sins don't have to be dealt with. Assuming that our own guilt doesn't need to be dealt with and doesn't deserve the just condemnation of God. Now on the flip side, you could say though there's another extreme. 
And that is to say that all I have is God's judgment. I'm under God's wrath. I, have, I read this and, I, and I, I have no hope. I've got nothing. I cannot stand before God. I have no assurance of my salvation. I have no place to put my guilt. Well, this is why we have to go to level two. We have to travel up the trail of Calvary to the cross of Jesus Christ. And there on the cross, we see judgment that, that makes Jeremiah 46 through 51 look like nothing. This stuff pales in comparison to the kind of judgment that Jesus receives on the cross. On the cross of Calvary, a darkness comes over the land, and that darkness represents the sins of His people. Your sin, my sin, all of our guilt, all of our oppression, all of our pride, all of our violence comes down onto Jesus, and Jesus takes this judgment that we deserve in His own body on the tree. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It's judgment for our salvation. Because He takes that judgment, we then can stand before God saved. Someone once said, we have met the enemy. And He is us. You know, this is the kind of humble realization that drives us to the second level. That drives us to the cross. That drives us to the remedy. That drives us to the Savior. That drives us to the only one who can take away our guilt. The only one who can clean up our mess. Speaking of cleaning up, uh, we have four kids. If you've ever been in a house with four kids, you know that there are some things that get scattered around the house. It's called a mess, right? You know what I'm talking about? And uh, part of our regular uh, uh, commands in the home are clean up. Clean up the mess, right? Like we're constantly cleaning up. Constantly. You know, you know what I'm talking about, Eric? We're constantly cleaning up. Well, you only have half the problem. Um, the, last week, I, I told my kids, I was like, I was like you've got to clean up the living room before we eat dinner. All of it. I said it to the girls. Chapman, he's, he's, he, he ain't helping. Right? He's creating mess, but he's not helping. Um, Haddon, you know, he kind of does his thing. And I come out, and uh, the girls had cleaned up half the stuff. They cleaned up their stuff. And they were wanting to eat. And I said, you got to clean up everything. And one of the girls, I won't say who, it's not a bad thing, a natural reaction. One of the girls said, but that's not my stuff. And I said, I don't care whose stuff it is. I said, clean up the living room. Clean it up. Well, she cleaned it up. And check this out. As a result, the one who made the mess, the one who made the mess <laughs> was able to join us at the dinner table. Here's what I want you to see. Your older brother cleaned up a mess that he did not make. He didn't even contribute to it. You had a mess that is keeping you from the dinner table of heaven. And friends, if you keep that mess to yourself, you will not be at the dinner table in heaven. You will not. That mess has to be taken care of. How do we get that mess taken care of? We come to our older brother, we turn from our sins, and we trust in him. And we see that he has cleaned it up for us. This is level two. This is Calvary. 
But we have to keep going up. We got to get to Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 18. We'll close here. Revelation chapter 18. As you turn, let me just remind you this past week, we saw two African Americans killed in a Kroger, and outside of Kroger in Louisville. A crime of racism. We saw another crime of discrimination. Yesterday, I couldn't believe it. I was like, when did this happen? This is unbelievable. Uh, in Pittsburgh, a synagogue, 11 people dead. Listen, our world is crazy. Our world is crazy. Our world is out of control. And listen, our world's been crazy since Adam and Eve took that bite. Craziness changes. Craziness looks different. But when we wake up every day and we get this feeling like, oh my goodness, what's going on in the world? I can't, I just had somebody text me after the Louisville shooting and a good friend of mine who lives in Louisville, he said, he said what's going on in our world? Yeah, it's cra- it should shock us. At the same time, this is humanity. Like this is the stuff that we've been doing for millennia. We've been oppressing people, killing people, nations against nations, even within our own people groups, harming one another. Like we are all, on one hand, victims, and on the other hand, we are contributors. Now check this out. The cross takes care of the contribution problem. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, those of us who are contributors, which is all of us, we are freed from our guilt. But what about, the vic- what about the victim side of us? What about the fact that we are still living in this evil empire? What about the fact that we are still hurting? We are still suffering. We still feel defeated. But we've got to turn to Revelation 18. Listen, the New Testament understands Babylon as much more than just simply a nation. For the New Testament writers, Babylon becomes a picture of something much greater. And we see this most clearly in Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. Having a great authority in the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, what does he call? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for unclean spirits, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Listen, this is Jeremiah language right here. Get ready to run. Come out of her. This thing is going down. Verse 8, for this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Babylon is a representation of the entire evil world in which we live. From the individual level to the government level. All of the sin and the brokenness that we as humans have created is Babylon. All of the spiritual realm of Satan and his demons is Babylon. And Babylon's time is coming to an end. Through whom? Remember the king we talked about? Look at the next chapter. Chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open up, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, and that name is this, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The King is coming back. We see our hero on the hill, as it were, and he gives us the nod. And we know that while we are still in this world of sickness and suffering and brokenness and death, that this is not the end. The ambush is coming. Final judgment is coming on the world. And through that, His church will be saved completely. Forever freed from sin and even from the temptation of sin. So where are we now? Who is the church? Where is the church? Well, if this world is a representation of Babylon, then we are the exiles in Babylon. We are the remnant. We are those waiting with hope. We are those building houses and dwelling in them. We are those who are planting gardens. We're shopping. We're eating. We're living normal lives. We're getting jobs. We are those paying our bills. We are those seeking to make an influence. We are those seeking the good of the city. When we have the opportunity to speak peace into a certain situation, we speak peace. When we have the opportunity to take a certain role to bring some, some change to a certain organization that would better reflect the, the, the common grace of God, we take that opportunity. The Bible calls us salt and light. That's who we are. We're living in this world. We're giving the verbal witness of who Jesus is. And we're speaking the gospel to the lost. And we're inviting others to come into this kingdom. And we are a people who are waiting. We're hoping. We're longing for the second coming of our King. Two applications as we close. Number one, come out of Babylon. Some of you are playing with Babylon. Some of you are way too comfortable with Babylon. Here in Revelation, it's clear, he says, for those of you who have delighted in the sexual immorality and the luxuries of Babylon, their judgment is yours. Don't think that we can just simply act like a citizen of Babylon, but be a citizen of the kingdom of God just because we believe one or two, three, or three things about Jesus. No, it's a change of citizenship. How do we come out of Babylon? We come out of Babylon through no longer being a citizen of Babylon, through being a citizen of the kingdom of God. Listen, we are out. We are in at one level, but we're not of Babylon. The church is a distinct people. This is why, friends, we have what we call church discipline. If somebody lives as if they're a member of Babylon, we as a church say, you are not giving evidence that you're a member of God's kingdom. And so we can no longer call you a member of God's kingdom. Does that make sense? This is why we have to love each other and have to get into each other's lives and have to know each other. This is why, friends, we need to be, I need to be, we all need to be open for, to people coming to us and saying, brother, I see some sin, some ongoing sin in your life, and I'm concerned. Family, we come out of Babylon. Come out of Babylon, and number two, live as exiles. All that that means Display the kingdom of God here on earth. Live as the light of Jesus Christ. Fight against sin in your own life. Spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost and dying world around us so that others might know the glory of salvation. Imagine that you were swallowed by a a, a 27-foot python. Somebody actually was. I'm not making that up. 
And imagine, imagine you're swallowed by this thing. It smells like rotten eggs in there. And it's hot and sticky. You can't breathe. And just as that moment, somebody grabs a nice knife and butchers the python. Judgment comes upon the python. And as a result, you receive your own freedom. Salvation through judgment. Evil releases its victims. And as a result, it is swallowed up by the same evil that it produces. God has destined evil to self-destruction. This is the message of Jeremiah 45, 46 through 51. One theologian, Louis Stolman, summarizes these chapters in this way. I'll read this to you as we close. These chapters tell us that the Lord reigns and is involved in the world. That God's purposes are realized in and through the contingencies of history. That the plight of suffering people is not beyond the scope of God's power and concern. That God neither forgets nor ignores those whose lives are full of pain and brokenness. That God acts on behalf of those who cannot defend themselves. That unjust and oppressive power structures will not endure. That raw power is not ultimate reality. That acts of callous disregard for life do not impugn divine justice. That God holds people responsible for their actions regardless of military muscle and religious claims. That God's salvation extends beyond the borders of any one people. And if I could summarize it in my own words, I would summarize it this way. The king who is the Lord of hosts, will destroy evil and deliver his people from bondage. The King, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of hosts, he will destroy all evil and deliver his people from bondage. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for preserving this word for us so that you might speak to us today. We thank you, God, that this passage has not just simply been fulfilled in the ancient world, but has had multiple fulfillments. The judgment placed on Jesus Christ on our behalf. And that we are still awaiting this final fulfillment as we await our King to come back and to take care of all evil. God, I pray that we would come out of Babylon that we would live as citizens of your kingdom in this world, and that we would eagerly await the hope that we have out of Zion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.